The end of the Cold War promised a golden age of peace and human rights. But the reality's been quite different. There's a brutal war in Ukraine. Authoritarian governments are on the rise. Human rights are under threat. And the UN has been undermined. It seems a far cry from the future we were promised. But why? I'm Bill Cruz, and you're listening to The Discussion. Michael Kirby is a past president of the International Commission of Jurists. He's also a former Justice of the High Court of Australia, and he led the UN Commission of Inquiry on Human Rights Violations in North Korea. Michael Kirby, the fall of communism was meant to sweep away authoritarian governments, but that's not what happened. Which governments are amongst the worst for human rights offences? Certainly, I would say uh, Iran would be a great abuser of human rights. And in terms of the human rights of refugees, the situation in Myanmar, Burma uh, is a, a big worry. The Russian Federation oppresses its own people, though it has a veneer of the rule of law. And China, in its treatment of minorities, leaves a lot to be desired. North Korea, which I studied for the United Nations, is a truly autocratic and oppressive state. So the list goes on. I could, I could keep yeah. on going. Now, you've mentioned North Korea. What shocked you most about there? I was sitting there in a public inquiry and uh, I came to a point in the hearing, and uh, I've been, I had been a judge for 34 years in Australia, and I saw some pretty awful cases, mm. but I heard the stories of a young woman who had fleed from uh, North Korea, but she'd been sent back to North Korea by China uh, and uh, forced uh, to undergo an abortion and uh, one of her children was drowned in a bucket. Uh, and uh, in the case of others, uh, other complainants, they would tell stories about how their job was to roll the bodies into a wheelbarrow uh, after the night and they were tossed out of the huts uh, in the detention centres. They would burn the bodies and there would be sticking out because it wasn't a completely successful burning, uh, arms and limbs, and they would wheel them to the fields and scatter the ashes and the arms and legs that hadn't been decomposed by fire. And I thought, I'm, this must have been what it was like to sit on the tribunal of Nuremberg, yeah. to hear the stories of what a terrible things had happened uh, in uh, the Nazi-occupied Germany. And I never thought that in my life I would come to a point that I was hearing these stories. Was that a privilege or a burden? A bit of both. Uh, it was a privilege to be trusted by the international community and the Human Rights Council, it sits in Geneva. Uh, but it was a burden to hear these absolutely horrendous stories of the repetition of the kinds of things that happened during and after the Second World War up to 1945. And um, at that time, uh, the international community developed 
the crime of genocide to deal with murdering a race or part of a race uh, and also the crime of crimes against humanity which were crimes that caused humanity to be shocked by the crime and we promised that we would not turn our back on genocide and not turn our back on crimes against humanity but it was brought home to me that that was exactly what we were doing. We were not facing up to and not making North Korea face up to the terrible crimes that were being complained of by the witnesses. What drives governments to crack down on human rights? It would depend on the government. In the case of Iran, which is such an oppressor of minorities, of the Christian minority, of the LGBT minority, of women, uh, the, uh, what drives them is a, a misguided view of their own religion uh, for all of the great religions of the world teach us to love one another and to mm. love God or love uh, humanity um, and they don't so that's what drives them in the case of North Korea I would say what drives them is keeping the Kim family the dynasty of the the three Kims who have ruled North Korea since the end of the Second World War, keep them in power. The world has made a lot of progress, but not against oppressors of this kind. They uh, just have such a stake in uh, repressing their populations, and we don't seem to have uh, in the United Nations or elsewhere solutions that will uh, grapple with these problems and address them and make sure that they don't uh, occur again. That was what we promised in 1945, mm. but we haven't delivered. So in, in the light of that, some might argue it's just an age-old problem. So why should the world concern itself with human rights violations? I think the world should concern itself with human rights violations because our little planet is a totally insignificant small planet in a mighty uh, galaxy and a, a huge universe uh, and uh, we are here on this little blue planet and we've got to get our act together and we've got to find ways to cooperate at least in fundamentals. I'm not saying that you've got to suppress all the differences in the world, differences of religion, differences of economic approach and so on, but we've got to find ways in essentials to work together. You're listening to me, Bill Cruz, and I'm talking with international jurist Michael Kirby. Michael, I'd like to ask you about the war in Ukraine. You take a particular interest in conflict resolution. How do we resolve that? Uh, well, uh, we don't resolve it by uh, simply denouncing one side and saying everything that's happened on the other side uh, doesn't justify what has uh, happened. I would say that the complaint of the Russian Federation uh, is genuine, but it doesn't justify their invasion of Ukraine. Their complaint is that after they seized um, Crimea in 2014, uh, they uh, ultimately negotiated the Minsk Agreement and that committed both Russia and Ukraine to discussions
for the purpose of dealing with the Russian minority, the Russian-speaking minority in Donetsk uh, and the areas of the, um, of the eastern border of uh, Ukraine, the western border of the Russian Federation. And the fact is that there wasn't much progress and on the contrary, there was negotiation uh, for Ukraine and other countries uh, in Europe to sign on to NATO uh, and to align itself with the nuclear weapons and other weapons of the United States and the Western Alliance. So uh, this is the Russian point of view. I'm not saying I agree with it, but it's, it's uh, to understand it is to begin the journey to deal with it. Uh, and that journey requires probably starting on the outside of the problem and then working your way into the very centre of the problem and dealing with what is the fundamental cause of the dispute, which is, uh, again, another problem of minorities in a country uh, and the education of their children in a different language and the resentment that that builds up. And this is what has not been resolved. And um, I, I would hope that some way diplomacy is going to find a means to get them round a table uh, and to uh, try to ensure that uh, both sides give a little and come to a conclusion because the alternative is we just go on killing each other and that uh, is really uh, uh, too horrible to contemplate. And how difficult would it be to prosecute someone like Vladimir Putin? Well, he's the head of uh, at the moment. He's the head of uh, the government of the Russian Federation. Um, he's not going to go willingly. Uh, and uh, the uh, prosecutor at the International Criminal Court has filed a prosecution uh, against him uh, at, that hasn't proceeded to trial yet because he hasn't been surrendered and isn't before that court. But um, it would be difficult to secure the testimony, but that might be available in the West. It might well be available. But uh, it, it does require consideration as to whether that is the way to try to get to resolution. Uh, the BRICS, uh, Brazil, Russia, uh, India, uh, and so on, the BRICS countries are going to be meeting this year in South Africa. And a question is now presented that is being hotly debated in South Africa. What happens if Mr Putin gets on an Aeroflot jet and goes down to South Africa? Will South Africa arrest him and hand him over to the International Court of uh, justice or uh, to the um, International Criminal Court. That, that is going to be facing the international community pretty soon. I don't think Mr Putin is going to get on that plane and take any risks, certainly not whilst the present conflict is proceeding. The world's also witnessing tragic human rights violations in Sudan. Here again, is there much likelihood of bringing anyone to justice? Um, bringing people to justice is a very difficult thing. How do we bring Kim Jong-un to justice for what is revealed in the commission of inquiry that I chaired in the report? How do we bring him to justice? How do we bring to justice the rulers of Iran 
and uh, the rulers uh, on both sides of the conflict in Sudan. Uh, this is the challenge, but um, it, it is sometimes resolved. It was resolved at the end of the Second World War uh, in the Nuremberg Tribunal and in the Tokyo Tribunal. Uh, there, uh, a number of accused of the uh, former state of Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan and they were convicted and in some cases they were actually executed, which raises a separate question. But how do we bring that about uh, is a very difficult question and I don't think it's immediately solvable and may never be solved, but we need to solve the immediate problem of the conflict uh, the war, the children who are being killed, the women, uh, the uh, intellectuals who are being uh, exterminated and uh, the autocracy that is being put in place of democratic governance. So these are our challenges. Is the international rules-based order breaking down? Well, it certainly uh, is not as optimistic as, as it was when we first started conversing uh, about 20 years ago. Uh, in those days, you felt as though we were on a path where ultimately every land would come to the rule of law and de democratic governance and international yeah. human rights. You felt that we were on a pathway to good outcomes. Nowadays, you can't so readily come to that conclusion. And the issue is, is that an irreversible turning point in the story of humanity, or is this simply an interruption to the natural progression of uh, humanity towards democracy, the rule of law and human rights? I like to think it's just an interruption because uh, at the bottom line, human beings are rational and intelligent and perspective perceptive of their uniqueness as conscience-bearing uh, people who understand their existence and understand the dangers that they face. And one hopes that out of this will arise a return to the table, negotiations between those who are in conflict, uh, and a return to the principles of the United Nations, including the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So does it concern you that bodies designed to uphold peace and human rights like the UN are being undermined? Well, of course, it's a, it's a very bad thing. The UN is not perfect, but I've worked in so many of the agencies of the UN, uh, in UNDP, the International Labour Organization, the World Health Organization, and some most of the people who work in those organisations are heroic. Mm. They work with very small resources, often with a lot of discouragement uh, and sometimes without very much ostensible uh, evidence of progress. But they keep at it. And if we didn't have it, we'd have to invent it. But we've got the United Nations and I do hope that uh, we will take time before... Uh, the 10th of December of this year to reflect upon the progress we have made, the progress we still need to make, uh, and the steps we have to undertake to uh, build again uh, 
a world order on this little planet. We saw our planet for the first time in my lifetime from the moon. We looked back. We looked in all the darkness of the enormity of the universe and saw this lovely blue planet. And uh, if we were attacked by Martians or something like that, probably we would get our act together. But short of that and short of nuclear peril, we really do need to find the means to get human beings to realise well, you have your differences and those differences can be quite important in significant differences. But uh, your uh, ultimate binding glue of humankind is your existence, a peace so that you can exist with your uh, parents, your children, your grandchildren, and build a world that is respectful of law. Because without the rule of law, it's the rule of power. And power is simply uh, another word for the control of a few people who are in charge and want to keep it that way. So given all we've talked about, are you sanguine about the future of human rights? Uh, I, I am. I have an investment in it since Mr Keith Gorringe, my teacher in uh, the, the uh, fifth class uh, at a public school in Sydney, gave us all a copy of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I remember it was printed on airmail paper, which you never saw in those post-war days. And he gave it to us, and he'd fought in the Second World War, and he wasn't glorifying the war he'd fought in and succeeded in. Uh, he was telling us, uh, as his the children in his charge, uh, you've got to read this and you've got to understand it and you've got to keep it in your mind as long as you live because unless we solve the problems of respecting universal human rights, then there will never be peace in our world. And I think he was right. Michael Kirby, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you very much, Bill.